Welcome to this week's Soulmate Says No episode of Spin Cycle, where over the next hour we try to make sense of the week's media goings-on, coming to you from the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, always was, always will be. I'm Jess Lilly, and while Najma Sambal wings her way across town and into the studio, I am joined from Western Australia by crikey reporter Charlie Lewis, who's back on his election bullshit. <laughs> and we'll hear all about that shortly. Uh, and in about 15 or 20 minutes' time, we'll be chatting with uh, journalist, author and culture editor at The Conversation, Patrick Lenton, about the role of um, pop culture uh, reporting in today's wildly bleak world and just the role of pop culture itself, actually. We felt like getting away from the politics for a bit, but... Um, you know, I feel like pop culture is just so huge right now, and we wanted to talk to uh, we wanted to talk to Patrick all about that. But Charlie, you're here. I am, yes, and I've got to say how furious I am that you you, you wait until I leave the state and you get all the fun guests on. <laughs> <laughs> the show must go on, buddy. <laughs> How's it going? In uh, are you in Perth? I am still in Perth, yeah, yeah, until tomorrow when, when I head to Geraldton, but um, we can get into the, the whys and wherefores of that. But yes, for the last, the last week, I've mainly been actually in the, in, in the really sort of centre Perth kind of uh, electorate of Curtin, which, uh, yeah, has been mainly what I've been covering since the um, ALP launch. I really loved your write-up of the launch. It was um, such a funny little uh, insightful kind of peek behind the curtain a little bit at um, just the way those sorts of things uh, operate. Can you tell us a bit about what it was like to be there? Yeah, it was a funny one. I've never actually been to a campaign launch before, so it's, it's, it's worth seeing one. Um, and I guess, yeah, as, as you sort of, as you very kindly said, my sort of piece focused a lot on uh, the behind the scenes as much as the, the pageantry of the of the event itself. And there is a lot of there's just long hours where you're not really doing very much. And I think also, I mean, for me, the way I put it in the piece is that I uh, it was a real first day of school where no one will sit with me vibe <laughs> because every, most of the other people who were there were, were like either very high profile journalists, people like Phil Curry from the Australian Financial Review or Catherine Murphy from uh, The Guardian or David Crow from The Nine Papers, people of, of that kind of level. The, the kind of other main cohort were just the people who had been on the bus with Albanese for, you know, a week or two already. So they would already kind of establish their little, their cliques and their kind of, you know, uh, sympathetic publications to one another. And I was sort of sat up to the side getting, getting pitying looks from Peter Van Onselen, So I love the way you describe the TV guys too. Yes, it's very neat and compact. They always, they, they, you, they were they somehow, carrying briefcases, Charlie? Um, none that I could see. Um, <laughs> Um, and yeah, I suppose the, the other kind of thing that was very interesting to kind of note was that you sort of would be in in the hours that you've got to fill in these times. They just sort of it's just watching politicians and journalists kind of hang out off the mm-hmm. clock, and the way that that kind of becomes a little a, a kind of subtle little dance between the two of them that that clearly the journalists. Everyone's doing this. We're all just friends here, having a bit of a laugh and a, you know a joke about the various things of campaigning. But no, but everyone's completely on. You know, everyone's yeah. everyone's definitely trying to get little bits of information out of the other. Everyone's definitely trying to plant little ideas that the journalists might follow up. And it was just very interesting to see. I don't think. It, by the way, I think there's a sense when I talk about this stuff that that's like oh sinister and they're too cozy and stuff. It, it, it didn't. It didn't always feel that way. A lot of it was just people trying to get genuine sort of. Uh, practical information out of each other, which was sort of necessary. But it was very interesting to watch and very funny about how no one was, no one was able to say exactly what they were trying to achieve, you know? <laughs> and um, how was the vibe of the launch itself? 
it, it was good. It was good. God, it feels like quite a long time ago now. But um, uh, the the energy was very high, and I think that. Um, so there was there was uh, Paul Keating was there and, and Kevin Rudd were there. They were the two sort of former PMs uh, in the front row, and, and obviously all of the um, all of the shadow ministry was there, more or less, apart from Plibersek, who was was, was campaigning elsewhere. Um, but it was interesting. I mean, they they, so they opened with um, with Penny Wong and Jason Clare, actually, and with a local candidate, uh, Zanita Mascherenas, who's running for Swan, which is one of the, the seats that, that WA Labour really think could be in play this time. Um, <clears throat> And it was funny. So, so Claire and, and Wong and, and Mashroness were all were all good. They're all in good form. But um, the the the, the, the sort of warm up act for Albanese was 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 WA Premier Mark McGowan, and that and I've I've never seen people hooting and hollering <laughs> over a state a state official in this way. I mean, it, it wasn't just like I mean, obviously it's a it's a it's a party launch. Everyone's in a good mood and, and wanting to cheer on Labour. But they were I mean they were near enough throwing themselves to their feet to applaud him. And, um, and in some ways, that was obviously like, you know, you couldn't have it any other way. He's the most popular guy in politics in the country, really. If you look at the approval ratings, it would be silly not to utilize that. But it did also give a bit of a sense of like, oh, have you worn the audience down a little bit here? Have you gotten them too hyped too quickly? And now Albanese has to do quite a long speech. And it did start to feel like that began to drag a little bit where, you know, we'd had our sugar rush and everyone just was kind of, <laughs> yeah. Um, welcoming uh, Najma Sambal to the studio. That was a very uh, quiet entrance for you, Naj. Discreet. I was um, really enjoying that, Charlie. I haven't spoken to Charlie in a while. Yes. Um, haven't been in the studio for a bit. And how are you going, mate? Good, good. And, you know, incredibly scattered. It's a very, it's yeah. not good for your brain to do this, as I'm sure you're probably finding out uh, on the campaign trail yourself. But, yeah. um, but also, it's you know, it's what we live for, isn't it? Unfortunately. Um, with the with report, like once, so once the um, I was I really liked your description as well of the everyone sort of rushing to a room and just head down and tapping away to file the uh, the piece as soon as the sort of launch was over. Um, what's it like being on on the road and sort of having to f- just really find these stories in in WA where you are uh, on the ground, sort of doing all the research and then having to find the interviews and then filing all the time? Is it how different isn't you know from your cushy desk job in Melbourne, Charlie? <laughs> Yeah, no. Finally, finally getting out there and earning my stripes, doing a bit of shoe leather journalism. Um, I mean, look, I, I, I do really enjoy it, and I think also the, 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 the Western Australian one has given me a bit of a chance to hopefully approach some of these uh, stories from from a different angle. I mean, it, you're, I think the thing about it is, it really it does. Yeah, I, I work extremely hard at my day to day job. Uh, thank you, but but it is it is a very predictable rhythm. You know, kind of more or less what I would be doing sort of from one day to another and, and how to organize my day. That's not that's not the case at all in, in, in election reporting. Things drop in your lap in the last minute and then you'll have a, like a little period where it's a bit quiet and you feel a bit stressed but you're not sure where the next thing is coming from. But yeah, it always I've, – I've never found that I'm, you know, short of anything to do. What have you um, – what are some of the biggest sort of stories that you've um, uh, sort of come across so far or the bigger trends in stories over there or, um, or is that your next – next job now that the launch is over to to kind of go out into a few more electorates and and find out how everyone's thinking yeah 
Yeah, yeah. So the two electrodes I've mainly been in uh, since the launch have been um, Curtin and Fremantle. Um, so Curtin is, is, is the more, um, in terms of the election, probably the more in, in, you know, uh, urgently interesting one because um, this is it, this is basically WA's version of the teal independent phenomenon that we've been talking about so much over the last couple of uh, weeks. So in this case, it's uh, a formerly liberal blue ribbon, like one of the safest seats in Australia for the Liberal Party, um, under the when uh, it was held by former Deputy Leader Julie Bishop. Um, she managed to take it from an already safe seat to, you could pencil that one in, you know, day one of the election campaign. Uh, they replaced her with um, Celia Hammond, who's, um, apart from anything else, she's a, she's a, a former Notre Dame uh, vice chancellor, and she's um, more outwardly conservative in her views, in her social views, than, than, than Bishop ever was. So it was kind of a little bit of an eyebrow-raising choice in some ways. There was always going to be a drop in popularity. That was that was always going to happen. You weren't going to keep that that level of personal popularity vote. But that's now coming up against uh, Kate Cheney, who is a um, again, classic teal independent, very high-profile, well-educated local woman. Um, Are there sort any of, male teal independents? Because they're just majority seem to be women, <laughs> and I know a lot of people have reported on that aspect of it. But what do you, what's your take on it, Charlie? Yeah, no, I, I, that's a really good question. I've, I'm certainly, I'm yet to come across one, uh, uh, an independent, a teal independent who is a, uh, who is a man. Yeah, I boys think it's, and it, it, teal. <laughs> well, which, yeah. sa- which says a lot. I mean, I think the, you know, the sort of respected wisdom is that a lot of the teal ind- independents would have gravitated towards the Liberal Party. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it says a lot about what um, the Liberal Party represents for women and moderates. Um, that they feel the need to go mm. independent. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and, and Cheney in particular, uh, she comes from kind of uh, WA liberal royalty in some ways. Her, her uncle, Fred Cheney, was a, a minister under the Fraser government, and mm. uh, her grandfather, Fred Cheney Senior, uh, was a was a minister under Menzies and Holt. So, so there's a, quite wow. a bit of Liberal Party pedigree in her background. Um, so, and yeah, you're right. And, and actually, Fred Cheney wrote in WA Today. Uh, was it yesterday or the day before? Uh, I've really lost track of all the time. I think it was yesterday um, that. Uh, you know, he sort of did his piece about what he thinks has happened to the Liberal Party and how it sort of moved away from uh, from everything that it used to stand for, everything that he thought he was representing when he was part of that party. And yeah, it is that kind of thing. Of it is people who consider themselves relatively fiscally kind of conservative, but don't like it when the assistant minister goes to anti-abortion rallies and, and you know, don't like it when the prime minister says it's a free country in response to that. And they, they don't like mistreatment of refugees and and they want action on climate change and they don't see that happening in the Liberal Party as it stands. So like the it, typical socially progressive type of small L liberal? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly that. Classically, classical liberal, you would call it, I guess, you know. Yeah. yeah. So what's next, Charlie? <laughs> Well, what's next is oh, just to, just to draw a quick line under curtain. I think what's really interesting about it is that um, it's sort of a double um, double disaster in some ways for the Liberal Party that they're having to fight so hard for it. Uh, under Julie Bishop, among all the other things that she she brought to curtain with her personal popularity, she was a very very good fundraiser, and this is really emblematic of one of the issues that WA has come uh, WA Liberals have come up against in this election is that all the high profile good fundraisers of the last last few years have kind of been, have kind of either left or, or, or sort of left in disgrace or just left because they've retired. So obviously <laughs> Matthias Corman, um, Bishop herself, 
Christian Porter, a lot of these guys who you, it, it, and then that has a double effect where not only um, do you have to, not only are you not getting the money that those guys raise, you're suddenly having to spend money that could have been spent on more marginal seats in the seats that you usually were able to sort of say, well, that's, that's not going to be a problem for us. So the, the practical implications of that are really interesting. And then you add, I'm sorry to keep going on about this, but then you add the fact that this is also a lot of the state-based structure, infrastructure they have was wiped out by the by Mark McGowan mania, by wiping out all those sort of mm. state-based MPs, you lose a lot of the kind of on-the-ground know-how, a lot of the on-the-ground mm. infrastructure that you need to mount a, a really strong campaign. So it, it, there's a lot of sort of factors at play there. So the Liberals aren't – do you think that they're tanking in WA or is it just feel – you can just feel that there's some some pressures you can definitely feel it's pressures. I think the it's it's really interesting. It does depend on who you ask. There's a lot of Labour people I've spoken to who are just too spooked by 2019 to to count any yeah. uh, chickens before they act. <laughs> oh. um, but but the other thing is, and again, it's sort of the other thing I've sort of been hearing. One, there's no there's no hint that the WA could could go could reverse against Labour the, the way that it has previously. There's a sense that the the very worst version is that they hold what they have, which which. You know, would be which would go against the, the polling, which implies that they've got you know one or two seats genuinely in um, in contention. And, and I think the other thing about it, because their historical performance here has always been so poor, they don't have to um, do that well to do a lot better than they have previously. If that makes sense, mm. they, don't, they, they don't have to get fifty percent of the votes to win the seats that they're hoping to win here. They only have to get it to you know fifty to forty eight against them, and they can still pick up two seats. So mm. yeah, so it's it's very interesting. Yeah. Um- I forgive me if you've already answered this, perhaps maybe a million times. But do you feel? Um, I know you're from WA, Charlie. But do you mm-hmm. feel like um, you know? There's a sense that you're the reporter from Melbourne, you know, in a <laughs> city latte sipping journalist <laughs> who's come up <laughs> from the big smoke. <laughs> um, if people if people think that they're they're doing a very good job of hiding it from me, <laughs> they're saying it behind my back. I think. No, I think I mean because you know I, I do have. Uh, I, you say I do have quite a, you know a long history here, and I think yeah. that, that, you, you, it's pretty easy to quickly know, yeah. <laughs> I, but, but but I also do make a point you know uh, very early on in any conversation yeah. with anyone in WA politics of sort of slipping on some little thing that makes it clear I used to live here, I used to go to school yeah. there, or you know it's always you know. It's scared that someone will just come out of the bushes and be like, he doesn't even go here. <laughs> Charlie's walking. Charlie's walking around in his primary school t-shirt. <laughs> WA, this old thing. Yeah, I'm wearing my third glory glory strip, yeah. Uh, All right, Charlie, well, we'll leave you to it. You're going to be back next week? Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so my next few days are in Geraldton, which is the kind of near, oh, nearish uh, regional hub of the giant seat of Jurak, which is a really it has an incredible history, and I, I can't wait to get there. And although it's a very, very safe seat, no one's really talking about this one turning into a very safe liberal seat. Uh, there are still a lot of concerns there that um, you know are, are along the lines of the kind of voices of uh, climate change action uh, mm. kind of area. And it, we, I, I'm going to go and talk to them and say, how do you? get cut through in in an electorate that's the size of a small continent, you know, Um, (laughs) which is, so yeah, that's my, that's my next people. In a, you know, geographical sense. 1.6 million kilometers. Whoa. And is it, is it quite like um, remote? 
Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I, so I imagine as soon as you said it, like a tumbleweed rolled by in my mind. Yeah, is this yeah. your is this your Hunter, Hunter S. Thompson moment? Are you got a convertible out yeah. in the desert? I say, like wake and fried. <laughs> yeah, a bottle yeah. of mezcal. You'll, you, you'll never hear from me again, but you'll you'll, you'll read a six thousand word piece on <laughs> three weeks from now that doesn't mention the election at all. But it'll, you know. I cannot wait. <laughs> Thanks so much, Charlie. It's 18 minutes after seven. You're tuned to Spin Cycle on uh, Triple R. We're going to hear a little tune and um, then chat to um, Patrick Lenton about all things pop culture. Stick around. Three Triple R FM. Our next guest, Patrick Clinton, is a writer, journalist and author of three books, the most recent being the short story collection Sexy Tales of Paleontology. Sounds hot. Uh, Patrick is a regular contributor to The Guardian and Sydney Morning Herald and is arts an arts and culture editor at, with The Conversation. He has been shortlisted for numerous writing prizes and has won a Best Comedy Award at the Sydney Fringe. And tonight he joins us to discuss what it is to write about popular culture in the age of seriousness. Hey, Patrick. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. How are you? I'm... Really excellent. <laughs> that is good to hear. Um, so I'm. I, I reckon there's a pretty <clears throat> solid argument for needing escapist entertainment at the moment, and it's. I find it really interesting that um, still we gravitate towards like ostensibly um, pop culture anchored in reality and get really um, intensely involved in supposedly real people's lives through reality TV or documentary-based entertainment. Why is that, do you think? Well, I think that even though we need a break, and we all do, we're all very tired and very sad, um, (laughs) I think that we need, we still need to find it relatable. You know, we still Mm. need to have that, that entry point into other people's lives to to find it accessible, you know, and interesting. And, you know, these people on reality TV, they're kind of otherworldly, you know, like they they're they're so, like they're doing something recognizable in the sense that like we're like, oh yeah, they're human beings, you know, on TV. But it's so strange and chaos. Mm. Yeah. Like why would you do it? Yes. <laughs> I, I honestly think that's the question that, mm. like, underlying all reality TV, like, what kind of weirdo would you have to be to go on these shows? Is it like trauma therapy for all for the rest of us? <laughs> I, I I think so. Yeah, I think I think that's a part of it. But also just like, you know, like, it's, it's that um, it's that eating popcorn gif, you know, <laughs> like, it, it, and and combined with. You know how, like, when there's a car crash, like, you kind of have to, like, yeah. like everyone looks at it, you know? It's, it's that feeling. But I do feel like, like, the whole world is a car crash now, you know? Like, yeah. there's, it's like car crash in 4D, to coin, mm. to coin a QAnon term. <laughs> um, I'm interested to ask your thoughts as well about the fact that Netflix is sort of hemorrhaging... Um, subscribers at the moment and you know no one's safe they've even taken the axe to Megan Markle (laughs) (laughs) what's going poor poor Megan what's going on there do you think what's uh, you know I thought Netflix was um had all the money in the world well they were the old reliable you know uh they've they've just been on their they've been kind of on their throne uh 
unchallenged for a really long time. So, like, so it's kind of a combination of things. Like, they lost um, thousands and thousands and thousands of subscribers um, when they uh, sort of shut down in Russia. Mm. Um, so that was a, that was a big one. But then we're just we are at peak streaming service right now. There are so many people who are gobbling yeah. up that that pie, and I think research shows that people are only um, subscribing to like two, maybe three max streaming services at a time. But people are chasing like um, prestige shows, so they're mm. kind of so they're being a lot um, more. Uh, or they're not being brand loyal, to put it mm. like to put it that way. They're not. They're, they're not saying, "Oh, I would go and watch this show that I want to watch." Except my heart is with Netflix. They're like, "Oh, cool. I'll I'll unsubscribe and then I'll you know and then if like something that I really want to watch at Netflix comes, maybe I'll buy that." You know. So I think it's I think it's just honestly competition. <laughs> yeah, that's so interesting because. I I do the same thing. I kind of weigh up like who's gonna which subscription's gonna die this month. Like, <laughs> and then um, but I swear like Netflix has me in a chokehold with a true crime. Oh yeah, totally. like oh my god, you can't get better than Netflix with true crime. I feel. What's your thoughts on that, Patrick? Are you a true crime <laughs> fan? Um, I haven't been for a while. Um, uh, true crime is my go-to thing when I've um, had a breakup uh, <laughs> because it's really fun to watch uh, stories about people whose lives are definitely worse than mine. <laughs> it puts it into perspective. Um, so we've, and, uh, yeah. we've hit you straight up with all our questions about popular culture, but I am. I, we should dial, go just rewind a little bit. What is it that um, made sort of popular culture your thing or why it was the area of media that you really wanted to to focus on it was honestly kind of a weird one uh i I sort of fell a bit sideways into it like i do with a lot of things in my life um but it was really that um i was looking for money (laughs) 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 Um, and i was i was a um i was a short story writer uh you know like that was pretty much what I did and um and I was looking for like more ways to make money as a writer and I never really considered like media or anything like that. But um uh Steph Harmon, who's the editor of The Guardian, but she was the editor of Junkie at the time, mm. like way back when it first started, um, followed a blog of mine, because that's how long ago we're talking, blogging. <laughs> um and uh and she was just like, Oh, I really like like I like your comedy writing um and i just need someone funny to write about i think it was gilmore girls you know like Mm. um and i was like oh i love gilmore girls and that was discovered that you know you can write about tv shows you know um for a living (laughs) 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 and it just kind of has been uh you know a uh a spiral since then and i think really the only thing that separates well you know if there's anything unique about me it's just that i can shovel more nonsense into my brain than anyone else in the world. <laughs> um, that takes me to like the one of the most funniest pieces of writing I read last year. Um, it was, I think, it was last year, my year of being younger that you wrote yeah, for "Kill Your Darlings." Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> that can you just tell listeners what that is about? Because that actually had me weak. <laughs> it was so good. Oh, thank you. Um, I mean, it was, uh, that was my essay where I kind of, um, 
I used to work at uh, Junkie, which is a youth media publication, um, and uh, uh, only left there um, last year. Uh, but I'm in my 30s, and when I got that staff writer job, I was still in my 30s. Um, <laughs> and, I, and I had this, like, horrifying crisis where, um, like, the other staff writers uh, who, you know, who are sort of my peers and equals were in their, like, early 20s. Um, and everyone around me were, like, hyper, hyper youth. Mm. So I had to... Um, and, like... And I kind of had this crisis of like, oh my god, am I too old to be in this job? And at the time, I was binge watching the TV show Younger, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is all about a woman in her forties who pretends to be twenty six in order to get a job in the lucrative world of book publishing. So I decided to do the same thing. <laughs> um, uh, what age did you pretend to be? I only pretended to be 31. Um, <laughs> so you because, just shaved a few years off. <laughs> yeah. Well, because the thing is, like, once you turn 30, you don't want to be any younger than that, actually, because it's a good age. Mm, um, true, true, true. But, but uh, you also can't, like, so I didn't want to be in my 20s, uh, and I didn't want to be that much older than 30. And then I was like, but you can't be 30, because if you're 30, everyone's like, yeah, that's like a big party, you know, mm. like. Um, that's a notable age. 31, I think it's probably the least thought about age in the world. So I said 30, <laughs> 31. Um, I think I think the, the fact that that piece was really funny um, as well is quite like, um, I think it, it was quite like profound in the sense that there was a part where you spoke about um, going in between Sydney and Melbourne, trying to find yourself. Um, have you found yourself since writing that piece and do you still go between Sydney and Melbourne? <laughs> um, I, I think I, I think since then I have found myself, which is, which is nice. I definitely, I, I definitely feel like I, uh, you know, like I know um, who I am and I haven't had any, like, you know, major tragedies for a while that mm. make me rethink the very core of my being. Um, but I, and I do live in Melbourne now, so mm. that's nice. <laughs> what is some of your... Actually, no, I'm going to ask about, um, as we're on that sort of personal, um, um, I guess, op-ed kind of style, that, that mm. sort of personal op-ed essay, there was one that appeared in um, the Sydney Morning Herald um, in the last week that absolutely went gangbusters on, um, online and even made it into Gorka, the um, publication um, dedicated to Snark. And the headline is, uh, less than a month after I met my soulmate, I ended my 14-year-old I'm sorry, my 14-year marriage. It's by an author, Amanda Trenfield, who was um, promoting her um, memoir. Mm. What thoughts, thoughts <laughs> do you have about that piece, Patrick? Because one of the reasons, I think, for listeners who haven't read it, I mean, she was really, you know, it was a bit of soul-bearing. It's, you know, she talked about how her um, soulmate basically said no after she left left her marriage. Um, for this guy, um, but it was the the writing that that really grabbed everyone's attention. How does sometimes these things just sort of seem to innocently emerge out of nowhere and send everyone into a spin? It's 
it's really weird. It's like a um, it's it's like a comet or something, you know. Like you you know, you know what it is, but you don't expect to see them. And when you know when they do, you're like, oh, this is this is great. Um, <laughs> I think I think there was just like it's a it's a it's a sort of an established format now that you know the memoir sort of the personal essay piece about like something you know like interesting that you've done usually often relationship based and so you, so you kind of read it with this like i think maybe you write it with the sort of perspective of like oh i did something interesting not sort of realizing that actually you've just given yourself a massive l you know like <laughs> Yeah, like, <laughs> he could have waterboard that out of me. Was <laughs> the commentary on social media? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's and it's weird because like because like I write a lot of personal essays myself, um, you know, and admittedly more in the sort of comedy sort of realm. So that mm. kind of protects you a bit because if you you know if you're making a joke about your own life, you're kind of there before anyone else cares. Mm. <laughs> um, but um, but I have written, you know, like uh, more serious and and serious ones, and I've had just so much kind of self doubt about like mm. how it will be received, and I think that there with this essay, it there's a kind of like a, a reckless abandon to it that is fascinating. Like mm. it, it's it's so fascinating that she's so confident in herself and in her like like both ability to write this essay which wasn't particularly well written either but also just like justify this terrible sort of like experience that she's done and just be like this is great you know like and it's also all written in kind of like kind of quasi self-help uh like dr phil oprah mm. Well, you can you can yeah. book you can go onto her website and book a soulmate session. No. Yeah. Have you? Oh my yeah, god. Man, We've been like deep a, in this, Jess I and I. <laughs> this is the, the thing that I found so interesting about it. At that point. Uh, so her book is called When a Soulmate Says No, a memoir. Um, and the thing that I found fascinating about it was, um, in her mind, this was massively successful because even though this guy rejected her it actually was the impetus that she needed to um get out of her boring sales job one of the lines in the essay is i work in sales after all oh that's right yeah <laughs> um and kick-started this whole new direction in her life um that's what i, f- I found really interesting about that piece was the complete mm. dissonance between the reaction to it like people were literally you know saying that they were reading it all things clenched because it felt so like secondhand embarrassment. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas in her mind, it was a massive success because, you know, that was the thing she needed to the jolt that she needed to shake up her life, you know, but the thing I kind of think as well is, and feel free to jump in guys, like, if that was written well, I feel like it would have changed it completely. And I know that sounds like yeah. now that I've said that out loud, it's like, well, no shit. <laughs> 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 Sorry, I'm a bit rusty, Patrick. I wasn't on last week. Um, but I just feel like it was like this kind of like Fifty Shades of Grey 
prose. Like it yeah. was really like these short kind of like locked eyes. They gripped my chair. As like, the was... entree was served, Jason offered me a sip of his wine to taste the robust old wine Shiraz. <laughs> After a little banter and coaxing, I accepted. Like as, as like an editor, Patrick, like if something were to hit your desk yeah, exactly. that looked like this, right, at what point do you go, this is going to be fantastic because it's so, like, it's going to get people kind of reading it for all the wrong reasons. And at what point do you kind of go, let me try and give some guidance, like... What's well, an extract, wasn't it? It was an extract, but, like, yeah, yeah true, what, what that's would a you tough do one. Yeah, hit what, your desk, yeah. I mean, I would, like, I would hope that I would never, <laughs> like... I would hope that I would never commission something with the idea of, ha, 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 this is yeah, going to get, like, yeah. you know. Um, I, I think there is a real duty of care um, mm, there. Um, I, actually, I, I used to write um, quite a lot for, um, actually, I won't, say, I won't say the name of it, but uh, a publication that was um, part of a larger news, uh, newspaper that was kind of renowned for those kind of... Um, Personal essays, but very much trauma personal essays, mm. um, and uh, and I was quite happy to write, you know, like the, the couple of things that I did. But there were definitely people who uh, were airing things that I'm not sure if they were particularly like should have been sort of aired without like kind of guidance and mm. uh, you know and all that sort of thing. So yes, so I <laughs> I don't think I, I, hopefully I wouldn't um, mm. sort of do that. But then in terms of how do you like, how do you edit uh, mm. someone who has written essentially purple prose about their own life? Like, that's difficult to to kind of manage, I think. You know, like, how, like how do you say, your life sounds cringe? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, do you think that's why they did publish it? Because they kind of knew it was a cynical sort of click, click grab, clickbait grab or... I think, like, I think honestly that, like, relationship personal essays like that go pretty gangbusters mm. no matter what, okay. you know? Like, and anything a little bit, a little bit spicy about, like, uh, you know, like someone kind of justifying, like, you know, I, I left my, I left my husband because I was unhappy, uh, that's, you know, like there's a lot of people in un- unhappy relationships mm, yeah. who are like, great, I'm going to read that. Mm. Um, I don't think that they w- that they probably would have been able to say this has got viral cringe recognition mm. power. Like, mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's uh, 20 minutes away from eight. If you've just tuned in, we're talking to Patrick Lenton about the world of sort of cult- pop cultural reporting. And Patrick, at the other end of the scale, you're also um, a uh, culture editor with The Conversation, which is... <laughs> A, uh, an independent news organisation, global independent news organisation, but started in Melbourne, um, whose content is created by academics and then sort of edited by people with more journalistic experience. What is that like, taking copy from academics and tr- tr- making it readable? <laughs> it, it's, it is very, very... It is a really interesting challenge. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, um, I've, I often sort of refer to myself as like the stupidest man in the world um, and uh, and working with academics actually makes you feel like that you know <laughs> because because they like like a lot of what I do is they'll put in like you know uh, like I, I know I know writing I know words I'm, I'm you know like I joke about it but I'm not that 
stupid. Um, <laughs> but they'll put in words that I like literally have never heard before, and then I'll I'll sort of look them up, and they were last used in the 18th century <laughs> as like a you know. <laughs> a spell to raise mummies or something, um, and I'm just like, oh, okay. Like, can we can we get rid of this and and uh, you know replace it with something a little bit more you know accessible? Um, and then you know, and, and they're like, oh, okay. And then they'll replace it with something equally arcane. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's the um, whole that's the whole purpose of um, the conversation, isn't it? It's it's to make. Um, you know, concepts that have actually been through the full rigour of academic research, readable yeah. to essentially teenagers. That was the that was the kind of remit they set themselves right at the beginning. Yeah, yeah, just kind of you know, like uh, like general general audience, like something that yeah. you want to read, you know, like um, and something that you can easily sort of read. And so, like, so a lot of the authors who I work with are highly specialised, you know, mm-hmm. um, and will have. Oh, just a world of knowledge about something very, very, very specific. And it's really great that I'll be able to find them and say, great, so your highly, highly niche um, expertise is actually useful because of, you know, this thing that's happening in culture. Uh, for example, today I got someone, uh, a physicist, who um, uh, basically, like, he's, he's not highly specialised in the multiverse, but he's a, you know, a theoretical physicist um, and very engaged in that whole sort of like aspect of science, which I know nothing about. Mm. But then because there's that uh, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness came out uh, (laughs) today, I was like, well, what is like, you know, what is a multiverse? Is there like, is there any scientific fact behind this? And like, you know, it's kind of like, Interesting angle, but also there's a. I, I want to know. You know? Mm. <laughs> have you ever? This might be slightly controversial. Have you ever? And now I'm saying it. I'm going to say it. It's going to be not at all. Um, have you ever gotten like um, you know some great material from an academic and thought? Right. I wish like a journalist was writing this or a more experienced kind of writer. Have you ever just kind of uh, had any of those awkward experiences where you're like, oh, I can't do anything with this? Never, never. I can't do anything with this. Um, you know, it's uh, it's it. That's that's really the sort of the challenge. You get people who are definitely on um, a spectrum of their capacity to write. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in in article sense. You know, I'm sure that they are the Don DeLillo of research papers, or you know. <laughs> uh, but uh, but writing in you know like a, a an eight hundred word um, you know online uh, article is like requires a different sort of type of language Such a and different sometimes set of skills yeah absolutely you know and then so, so sometimes it's it's really about taking the the kind of raw material they uh, they give me and we kind of work together in uh, you know not not too much so but sometimes being like hey you know like. How you doing, cool teens? <laughs> <laughs> did you get? Did you get? I think of getting a physicist to um, talk to you about how you get. I feel like I'm just about to be so sexist. I'm going to talk about. I was going to say something about getting Kim Kardashian, Kardashian into Marilyn Monroe's dress, but we know it was a diet of tomatoes and. Um, was it? I'll be trying air. to look for it. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. like, so, what is your opinion on that, both of you? Like. I feel like people are just popping off for no reason. Like, like so what? She is like the Marilyn Monroe of the 21st century. Uh. Yeah. 
How you do? You disagree, Jess? No, no. I, I, I just think it's funny because I've seen, um, I've seen some heated uh, debate. I know about that. There should be no debate. Like, what do you think, Patrick? Oh, absolutely. Like, um, I think that, I think that there is an argument to be made that, um, you know, she is the Marilyn in the sense that celebrity culture has also mm. uh, kind of. Um, expanded and uh, maybe become even more hyperbolic than it was then. So therefore, she is a kind of even bigger, more fake figure than Marilyn Monroe ever was, you know, in her depictions by the media. Mm, yeah. um, but I, but I think that that absolutely means that she's the heir to that dress, um, and uh, and it was probably one of the more interesting statements in sort of uh, celebrity culture. And you know, and I also I just don't think that like. The, the, I, I haven't seen a single argument about why she shouldn't have worn it. That made any sense to me. <laughs> she certainly knows how to get make head, news headlines. I mean, that's the thing for me is like she she's so um, clever at yeah. just sort of um, set, setting the direction, that setting the compass of of popular mm. cultural conversation, like a an event like the Met Gala. And um, you know she, yeah, she quite simply knew how to how to own it. Yeah, there was just rumours um, from fans that she was going to wear the dress, but at the same time, it's like you know a kind of like a nice gold sheery like sheer dress that she it's like every other thing that she's worn. <laughs> like I'm sorry, like it was kind of like a little bit underwhelming. I would have liked her to wear that. What was that like massive floral thing she wore when she was preg- pregnant with North? And like Mary Kate and Ashley Olsen went up to her and told her, like complimented her, and she was like, "I was the best thing ever." <laughs> yeah, it was the symbolism as opposed to the um, to the fashion. Mrs. Doubtfire dress. That's the one. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, we could go on, Patrick. What are you What are you watching? What are you getting into? Uh, oh, I'm watching. Um, like probably when I hang out the phone, I'll be watching um, Russian Doll season two. Oh. Yeah, Russian Russian Doll was one of the when when the first season of that came out, which must have been two, three years ago. I can't remember now. Um, I think that's one of the best shows that um, that has come out in kind of the streaming age. It's uh, it's really really strange and odd and like um and a kind of, you know I, I don't if you haven't seen it, it's a kind of a. Um, retelling of like a groundhog day situation yeah. it's perfect it's perfect and and season two which i didn't think would be i was like well what can they possibly do like are they going to return us to groundhog day because that's kind of not the point of it season two is great uh, and i'm really surprised and thankful brilliant i'm gonna have to watch yeah same i've given up on um what's the other one that feels similar um killing eve that just got so uh, silly Do, have you watched it patrick um, look, I was a big Killing Eve fan, and then oh I God. and then I dropped off. And yeah. uh, it seems seemed like from what I've read about the finale, seems like that was uh, the right choice. Yeah. yeah. Mm. On that note, thank you so much for joining us, Patrick. Oh, it's been such it's a been pleasure. Brilliant. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. Anytime. Come again. Triple R on FM, digital, online, on demand, podcasts, and via the app. Um. We're back. And, Naj, did you know? Yes, listening. (laughs) That out of 180 countries, Australia has dropped from 25th to 39th on the Reporters Without Borders Press Freedom Index. 
Oh, my goodness. On, in the intro to their reasoning, they say press freedom, freedom is fragile in this island continent of 26 million people where ultra-concentration of media ownership combined with growing official pressure endanger public interest journalism. That is really, really worrying, not going to lie. You can kind of feel it, though, can't you? Yeah, especially with election year. I do you really I, feel it. I do sort of – I know it's not great hearing that, but it does reassure me a little bit that I'm not just one of those conspiracy theorists, <laughs> you know, going – It's not popping off on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I don't do that, but oh, I try not to. But – um. But uh, not well, – yeah, one of those people kind of, you know, sh- shaking my hand at the clouds because a journalist doesn't agree with me. Yeah. But I do find myself titching a lot at what I does appear to be some bias in headlines and things. I've, I've actually feel like I've withdrawn from election coverage a bit. I think. Yeah, same. I'm just same. not feeling it as much. I, th- I guess once you know what, you, what you're going to do and – there's just so there's still three weeks to go. It's like the halfway mark, so it's kind of getting God. like I think we've just like out. There's just so many things have happened at the very beginning. Like the gaff took up a lot of time. Oh, I think they tried to do another one, and today. I think like um, devs in Moringa that was also mm. pretty ugly. And like like I feel like all the like I say this and I regret it, but like what what's the worst that could happen? <laughs> <laughs> But I'm very interested to see, um, you know, lots of, um, you know, former liberals, you know, writing op-eds about um, the way how they believe their party has lost its way and mm. you're kind of seeing like um, the battlegrounds of Goldstein and Kuyong and that's like that still interests me because oh, I do. it's only yeah. becoming um, – so did you hear that um, about Frydenberg and um, Monique Ryan's um, in-law – um, yeah, her yeah. mother-in-law. Yes, yeah, that the, was very interesting. I mean, I think that was it, it, to me. I think that shows a little bit where, you know, this real um, big heavy hitter um, cult, liberal culture has mm. lost its way a little bit because he completely misread uh, how that would be received yeah. and then doubled down. Like you know, but was it like? But the thing about that, I've listened to it a few times, and I'm still struggling to find what was so wrong about, I guess, but maybe it's because I've heard worse from politicians. Oh, no, I, I just, mean, what, yeah. the fact that he said she came up to him and told him she was going to vote for him yeah. or something. Look, I, I don't know. Um, like, like I'm just saying, if I was a politician um, <laughs> and so somebody was, came... Uh, for anyone listening, I mean, sure, everyone yeah. knows about it, but Monique Ryan's mother-in-law apparently approached Josh 87-year-old, she's an older... Elderly. Yeah. She's a octogenarian and a and a, a, a hardcore liberal. And she approached him in the street and said she was going to vote for him, and, and told him that she was Monique Ryan's mother. I think I don't think it's the fact that she said it. It's the fact that he repeated it as a kind of joke, as a thing. joke, and but then sort I'm of like... afterwards, once he once you know people were like, "Oh, come on," he's just he sort of kept going. I think was the yeah. But at the same time, he's a politician, and I'm sorry if I had that kind of fuel and I was like really fighting for my seat and hanging on the way. <laughs> He is with Kuyong, and I had to do a you know front page spread of the Herald Sun. Like, 
I'm probably going to say your in-laws are voting for me too. Probably not in the way that he did. You you need to go into politics. You'll just be slaying them all. No, I think the the point is that he's not reading the room, right? Yeah. Because a lot of people have said, what are you doing, mate? Yeah, Pull your head in. And he's not pulling his head in because he is kind of desperate. You know what I think is going to be interesting with all of this? um, Really? But it was such good ammo. I'm sorry. Like that's what I expect from a politician. Like if you're going to bring it, it, bring it. Yeah, Yeah, and he used it. But I think it was the fact that after like, – and he obviously thought it was so golden that he didn't listen when people said, oh, maybe, it maybe was a, enough Yeah, it was a very much a get your house in order, Monique, because they're voting yeah. for me, wink. Um, but I don't yeah. know. For me, as a consumer of news, that was highly entertaining. I think what's going to be super interesting is if they do lose, it's a real embarrassment for um, – for Murdoch, isn't it? Because they have done everything in their power, all these amazing front page articles mm. and all that sort of stuff. But hey, we're out of time. We were going to talk about other stuff, but we can't. It's um, almost eight o'clock and. Election's Neil... not going anywhere, so. <laughs> no, Neil Rogers is um, standing by with the, for the Australian, with the Australian mood. We've got a couple of more announcements and uh, then Neil's with you and we'll be back next week, seven o'clock. Catch you then. <laughs>